Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, a special National Women's History Month episode on women and activism, acting locally and globally. Hi, and thanks for joining us. I'm Ashley Ford. And you know, it's interesting how many on the left find themselves defending the FBI in its investigation of Trump. This is the organization of COINTELPRO, with its attacks and smears of MLK Jr., the Black Panther Party, and women activists, Judy Bari, an environmentalist and labor leader, and Viola Liuso, a white woman from Michigan who worked on logistics for the Selma to Montgomery marches. She was later murdered by the KKK. Hard not to be rooting for the FBI now, however, or at least for Andrew McCabe, former deputy director and potential witness in the Trump investigation. How does the saying go? The enemy of the enemy of humankind is your friend? But is this FBI really the enemy of Trump, as Trump would try to have us all believe? Our memories would have to be pretty short to fall for that, right? Wasn't it this FBI who disclosed, about 10 days before the 2016 election, that they were looking at yet more Hillary emails, a move that almost certainly sealed the Electoral College win for Agent Orange? And weren't people saying at the time it was likely that Mueller preemptively sent Congress the letter about the emails for fear it would first be leaked by a pro-Trump faction in the FBI? And this pro-Trump faction had a name, and it was actually the nickname for the Bureau at the time, according to one agent. It was called Trumplandia. It's now been two National Women's History Months that we should have been celebrating one of the most historic achievements for women nationally if it hadn't been for that FBI. Instead, we have someone in office who, well, we all know how he feels about women. On the show today, it's a show about women and activism. We'll talk to some amazing and badass activists working in both the local and international space. And also, we'll talk about an opportunity for you to get engaged this weekend. Of course, I mean by participating in the March for Our Lives. And here are some additional things first. I never spoke to any Russians. Wait, okay, yeah, I, I spoke to one. Okay, sorry, you're right. I spoke to a couple more. Didn't put it on my security clearance application. I just forgot. Or actually, I outsourced it to a third party. That's Jared Kushner talking, sort of. You like my impression? His voice is kind of high, right? It's becoming a familiar theme. Misinformation on consequential applications, blaming third-party handling like the ones for security clearance or the ones for 80 construction permits on buildings here in the city that misstated the number of rent-controlled residents in those buildings. I don't have any rent-controlled residents. Okay, maybe there were some. Sorry. What that lie did was allow his company to avoid extra oversight to protect those tenants from harassment during construction. Nice when you've got other people doing your work for you, who you can then blame when you get caught trying to skirt the law. But a city council member isn't having any of it. Richie Torres of the Bronx just called for an investigation of Kushner companies. And we'll keep you posted on this. Want to exercise your activism this weekend? You're probably already aware of the March for Our Lives happening in Manhattan this Saturday. But here are some details. Organizers say they're expecting people in the tens of thousands. They'll follow this year's Women's March route, starting at 72nd Street and Central Park West, and it opens at 10 a.m. No politicians are speaking, just educators and student activists. 
They'll take the stage at 11 at Columbus Circle, and then the march will continue east on Central Park South, and then go down 6th Avenue until 43rd Street. The weather? Expect it to be in the low 40s and partly sunny. And then we got to give a shout to this bodega in East New York. It's called D&D Deli and Grocery. They're pretty normal. They've got your pork rinds, your produce, your royal Canaan cat food, but also a radio station? That's right. Operated by bodega worker Giovanni Valdez, originally from the Dominican Republic, the station is called La Relambia, FM, which means someone who's flirty or an attention seeker. And it's run out of the basement of the corner store on Linwood and Belmont. It's 94.1 on your radio dial. He has a 10-mile radius and plays a steady mix of Latin tunes. There's also the ability to call in and talk to DJ Hova. That's Valdez's DJ handle. Check it out. And stay tuned for our first guest. You've heard of Human Rights Watch. But an organization dedicated to women around the globe has been active for almost as long. It's called Madre. It's based here in New York, and it works to combat violence against women and advocate for their rights on a grassroots level. The executive director, Yifat Suskind, is doing something else. She's drawing lessons from active and brave women abroad and applying them to the needs of the women's movement here at home. We're fortunate to have her with us today to talk about Madre and some of these valuable lessons. Thanks for joining us on 112VK, Yifat. Thanks for having me. Yifat, what are some of the most pressing global issues that you're dealing with right now, helping women to, you know, just sort of be more equal parts of the society? Well, I'll tell you what comes to mind. I'm just coming from a, a two-week conference at the UN of about almost 8,000 women from around the world, mm -hmm. um, women's rights activists. And, you know, you'd think they're coming from, from countries that are, are so far apart, and yet so many of the issues that we were talking about are, are the same issues. Right. And, and in many parts of the world, people are dealing with a version of the same kind of crisis that we're feeling here in the U.S., mm -hmm. which is a, a really concerted rise of authoritarian government, of repression from those governments, of a, a kind of license to really hateful right-wing ideologies um, that, that in a lot of places have been a little more sanctioned until now. Right. Um, and that really unleashes and generates violence, and in particular, violence against women. Mm. And when we talk about violence against women, you know, it's not an abstraction. It's something people are experiencing in their real lives, so they're experiencing that not just because they're women, but also because they're indigenous or of African descent or poor right. or living in an unsafe place. So the kind of constellation of those issues mm -hmm. um, is, uh, has really generated a, a pretty intense crisis in a lot of places. Right. So how is Madre specifically working with women in some of these locations to help process that, to help figure out, you know, how do we move that needle forward, and especially as it pertains to women's rights? Yeah. Well, I mean, we have the tremendous privilege of working with women in really hard-hit places mm -hmm. who are survivors in every sense of that word. Right. And so these are the activists, you know. These are, are the, the people who, who refuse to give in to despair. Right. And they are living kind of like the worst of the headlines that we've become used to seeing. Right. But 
they're not like sitting around crying. They are organizing and they are mm -hmm. educating and they are cooking for lots of people. Right. And they're, they're building and healing their communities in ways mm -hmm. that are really concrete as women do, you know, setting up food aid and breakfast programs and clean right. water projects and that kind of stuff. But also kind of like holding alive this um, idea of, of how they want those communities to be and what it is that we're working towards. Right. Um, which to me feels like, you know, as somebody who's based here in New York, feels like a really valuable lesson. That yeah, talk to me about that a little bit more, just because, you know, we are a Brooklyn-based show, um, but also because I, I feel like there's probably some knowledge that these women have that, um, you know, Americans tend to be really centered on America when it comes to people who have the answers. And the truth is, sometimes the knowledge that we need to move forward comes from outside of this country. Yeah, absolutely, right? And that's what we mean when we talk about solidarity, mm -hmm. that it's not, solidarity isn't just in one direction, that it's people who have access to resources, which is overwhelmingly in the U.S., even poor right. folks in the U.S. have have so much com materially compared to others, right. you know, and us imparting our money or our wisdom abroad. It's really, it's really two ways, and this is such a moment where yeah, we can really benefit from the the experience and the expertise of women right. in places like Haiti and Palestine and so many other places that have been dealing with you know an absence or a, or a really aggressive form, um, hostile form of government for for a long time. Right. Um, and um, and I think you know Brooklyn is a great example of of a place that is. Um, sort of like while everybody is like we're all walking in this contradiction right where it's mm -hmm. like the worst of times and the best of times yes you know there is a level of um, repression and violence not just in far-flung places in the world but in our own neighborhoods here exactly. that is really stark yes um, and very very grave for a lot of folks and you know we're all thinking about families of, of you know immigrants and migrants who are being separated now and people oh, yeah. facing police violence and you know we know it um, and, and the the challenge is like how do you respond to that mm -hmm. and deal with it and at the same time not lose sight of the fact that we are we're not only about saying no to that violence and right. resisting and yes resistance is, is critical and especially the part of it that's about figuring out ways to, to take action to protect the folks who are really most at risk right now right and we're seeing people in this country do that in in magnificent ways yes um, and, and the challenge really is also to remember not just what we're against, but what we're trying to build, ultimately. That's really interesting, because in a recent article, you posed the question, how can we go beyond resistance to advance our progressive vision, especially in this difficult moment in history when the right is on the rise? How did you answer that question? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm answering that question little by little, day by day, and right. certainly not on my own, right? Mm -hmm. We're all doing this sort of together as part of the, the movements that we're, we're working to build. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, but I think we have little clues um, mm -hmm. that we can follow, right? And there is a way in which um, we understand now, and in some ways better than some of the activists who came before us, I think mm -hmm. we've advanced in this way to understand that the way that we create the future that we want is just as important as getting there. Oh, yeah. Right? It's oh, yeah. about the process. And, and also that there's something there um, about uh, your tribe a little bit, um, working locally working with a local school, whether you have children in that school or not, 
working with local organiza organizations, whether you need the resources from those organizations or not. Also coming together under the banner sometimes of identity or of you know uh, oppression, like whatever you come together under. We are marginalized, we are this, like, and being able to talk about those things on a spectrum. One of the programs that we just had here Wednesday night was about the Me Too movement at a Be Heard town hall. And one of the things that I kept thinking about with Me Too, and I know a lot of women are thinking about with Me Too, is that they are at a point where they want to start thinking long term. Like, okay, we've, we've gotten, you know, a lot of these stories out there. This is a legitimate movement. We're talking. We're having the conversation. How do we make sure the conversation turns not just into change, but sustainable change? Right. Right. Oh, I was having this conversation with friends recently about how kind of how interesting it is that we can see that it's possible to, to take down all of these individual perpetrators of, of male violence, even a lot of them at the same mm -hmm. time, at the same time that patriarchy itself is winning right. on the policy front, right, in this country yes. and in so many other countries. And I think it, it really reminds us that you know, feminist social change is not only about what happens to individuals. Yes. It's about how we change ourselves collectively, change our institutions, change our social norms. Mm -hmm. And that's a, a different process right. than individual accountability, even though that's a, a piece of that right. puzzle. Yes. So we have to be, and we have to be able to do both, mm -hmm. right? Because if we only focus on changing laws and social norms, then what we get are great words on a page, right. you know, a fantastic and people new people who don't law. understand why they exist there. Right, right. Yeah. Which makes them harder to fight for over the long term and in subsequent generations. I totally get that. Can one of the things that you talk about with like, you know, sort of coming together and having these conversations and making these change, I wonder about the obstacles to that sort of change. In your work with Madre, what are some of the obstacles that you guys face, not just, you know, globally, like here too? Like what are some of the obstacles that you guys are still having when it comes to your work? Yeah. Well, I mean, there are some real material obstacles in the form right. of violence. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly that a lot of the women that we work with in the global south, um, in, in places that are impacted by war and, and climate disasters, mm -hmm. um, are facing, um, not just as a function of those wars, but because within those contexts they're trying to organize for their rights. Um, and there's a serious backlash right now. And, um, and we are putting a lot of energy into doing work that we didn't used to have to do at the same level around creating safe houses for activists and emergency escape and relocation networks. Wow. Um, and so that's, you know, that's pretty serious. Um, and I think that there are, there, certainly there are people in this country as well who are, you know, um, looking for, uh, someone I know just told me that they were looking for a way to get bulletproof glass wow. and just never imagined that they would be in a position to do that. And that's not in some faraway war zone, that's in this country. So has, the threat is real. Has that gotten worse post-election under this administration? I mean, earlier when we were talking about, you know, your conference with the UN and authoritarian regimes and sort of like an emboldening of those regimes, like I have to wonder, you know, as you know, the American president used to be sort of like the leader in those areas, and the direction that this person faced was the direction that 
the world was facing or attempting to face in any measure. And now, you know, we're facing in a certain direction. Is that changing the way things are happening around the world? Yeah, it absolutely is. There's no question but that we are seeing a real rollback of basic human rights mm -hmm. um, around the world. And it is a function of the dynamic you're, you're citing, which is in a lot of ways, even though there's so much hypocrisy and contradiction in the notion of the U.S. being the standard bearer for human rights, right? right? Because we know what those policies have been in reality. Right. Um, but it still matters, and it has mattered historically, that the normative line mm -hmm. is that the U.S. is supporting human rights. Right. And Donald Trump has completely erased that line. Mm -hmm. And that is not lost on leaders in countries like the Philippines and Egypt and Saudi Arabia and Israel and Russia. And I could go on and on, mm -hmm. um, where it is is clear that there's a green light for oppressing right. people. Oh, and that's terrifying. But they're going to be one of the good things that I've noticed anyway is that there are going to be a lot of people who want to do something about it and want to fight it. So if somebody wants to support Madre, what do they need to do? Well, the easiest thing is to go to our website, which is www.madre.org, mm -hmm. and see where it makes sense for you to plug in. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being here, Ifat. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you for your show. On March 14th, tens of thousands of students and educators around the U.S. staged a 17-minute walkout in honor of the 17 individuals gunned down in Parkland, Florida in February. Our next guest, a CUNY freshman and activist, was among them. She's been named by the New York Times, Teen Vogue, and Vice as one of the city's youngest and most active organizers. She's organized walkouts against police recruitment and increased police presence on college campuses, against the travel ban, school segregation, and more. Her name is Heba Jamal, and we're happy to have her with us today, as thousands around the city prepare for the March for Our Lives on Saturday. Thanks for joining us. Thank Heather. you for having me. So happy to have you. So you've written that it makes you angry when people say protests are pointless. I will admit it, it makes me angry too. But can you explain a little bit why you feel that way? Well, I think, you know, the idea of, for example, when we talk about democracy, right, mm -hmm. it actually gets me kind of upset when people focus all their efforts on things like voting, even though it's very important. Mm -hmm. um, because voting to me is actually a minuscule part of, de of democracy. Mm -hmm. I think protesting and you know making your voices heard and actually challenging the status quo you know it's all about what the civil rights movement was about it was all about you know um, the anti-war movement so I think when we talk about protesting it's actually one of the few times like you could make your voice heard in a way that's not just behind a ballot box right right and I agree with you wholeheartedly. Being civically engaged, I think, is one of the most important things that we can be, um, especially in this country. But what, were some of the, what are some of the issues that matter to you most or just, like, feel most pressing to you right now? So a few, th a lot of things. But, a lot of things. <laughs> a lot of things. But, you know, one of the main things I do um, advocate on is education reform, specifically around school segregation. Mm -hmm. So New York City has one of the most segregated school systems in the country, mm -hmm. and I work with the organization Integrate New York City. Um, it's a student-led organization, uh, specifically tackling school segregation in the city, and we came come up with this holistic approach to tackling um, integration in New York City public right. schools. Right. Um, 
you know, there's all, a lot of other issues. I don't know if you want me to get into, but um, but what that. Are some of those. I, I want to hear some of those. You know, I've read a lot of Nicole Hannah Jones at the New York Times on school segregation. Yeah, Nicole so, Hannah is So isn't she fantastic? Yeah, she's great. So talk to me a little bit about what are some of those ideas? How do we integrate schools in so, New York City? So when we talk about school integration, it actually has a negative connotation, um, specifically to Black and Brown families, because. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is a there is a negative history that is you know surrounding school integration, surrounding school segregation. When the whole busing movement happened, it really put, you know, it it really was traumatic for a lot of Black families to be constantly humiliated in white schools, right? right. But the students acknowledging this history came up with a holistic approach to tackle school integration. We actually came up with the 5R framework um, surrounding school integration. A lot of students, they were, you know, the, the integration was not the first thing that came into their minds. Right. Um, what came into their minds was resources, um, mm-hmm. school lunch, um, you know, educational programs in their school. Why do we have a right. metal detector in our school? Why doesn't mm. that school has, have a metal detector? Right. So, you know, you know, why Why do we only have white teachers when right. the school is a majority black and Latino? So that was my what, school. So what, yeah. what, you know, how could we bridge all of this together that's not just the movement of bodies? So we came up with the five, what we call the five-hour framework. Mm-hmm. The first R is race enrollment, focusing on understanding that the um, application process is both racist and classist and trying to uh, fix that. Then you mm-hmm. have resource allocation, understanding that you need uh, resource equity in schools, and then you have uh, relationships. So understanding that you need to bridge relationships and across you know identity lines and having right. um, uh, culturally responsive education practices in schools. And then you need restorative justice, which is the which is the fourth R, which um, eliminating things like metal sectors and tackling the disciplinary codes that disproportionately affect youth of color. Right. And the last one is representation, focusing on like understanding that you don't you, even though you have diversity among the student body, you also need diversity among the staff and faculty that understand how to deal with students of their own kind. So, um, you know, we use this approach and understand that it's multifaceted, so Mm -hmm. all of those things have have to happen at the same time in order to achieve um, true integration in our schools. Right. And education has been really the through line, and I'm guessing not just because you're 18, (laughs) you know, but also because this is just something that you're passionate about, and it's a system that, you know, so far you've not aged out of, you know, you've still been in the education system for this long. And I know that you helped organize, I believe, a protest regarding police recruitment and also police presence on campuses. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? So this was actually in conjunction with the March for Our Lives thing. Mm -hmm. So I helped. I you know I didn't lead it. I helped uh, organize it with other students on other clubs on campus, Mm -hmm. and we realized something very problematic in the rhetoric that we're seeing when we talk about the March for Our Lives. Right. So we so whenever both on the left and right when we talk about uh, you know gun control. There's always, there's always, uh, you see parents saying that we need more metal detectors in schools and we need more police in schools and we need uh, more security. And and then, you know, a lot of youth of color are like, wait, 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 wait. No, we actually need less of those. We need to be less like a prison. And I think it's, again, a whole other conversation about uh, what is the purpose of our schools, right? The purpose of our schools is to create an ideal society so we could, you know, help you know, get this perspective of uh, increased democracy, of, Mm -hmm. you know, more, you know, a dynamic thought process, understanding the world in different ways. 
it's not supposed to be everything a society shouldn't be, right? Right. So I believe that, you know, we organized that protest last week, you know, in conjunction with this idea of school safety is, you know, it's because we don't want more police on our campuses. Right. We don't want them to be, like, the first thing we see every single day. Um, right. And it, honestly, it or shouldn't the last be... Thing. It shouldn't, it shouldn't, it, you know, it, it shouldn't be a thing of, like, okay, I fear... I fear walking to school every day if I'm an undocumented student, or I fear mm -hmm. walking into school if, um, you know, it, it, you know, with a metal detector and and having to feel criminalized every day. Like the school right. to prison pipeline is a huge issue in our education system, both um, on campus and in 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 public schools. Yeah, absolutely. And you have a history at this point, a little bit of a legacy that you're building of being a person who makes sure that their voice is heard with issues like this and issues that I think you just deem important and you deem yourself useful to be able to talk about, which Thank is important. You. And that is part, I mean, that is part of what you were talking about earlier with engaging in the process, not just with voting, but in your actions and in, by being civically engaged. There are a lot of young women right now who I see and talk to and hear from who are pumped and who are ready to jump in and who are ready to have their voices heard. Do you have advice for them, especially the ones who are, you know, I'm 31 at this point. And really, it's the 18, 19, 20-year-olds who are going to be, you know, what ends up shifting this thing. I, I can help, but you guys, I feel like, in my mind anyway, are just really um, almost bred for it. So, yeah, I have a, little, a lot of thoughts about that. I think, you know, one thing is there's absolutely nothing special about me in particular, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of other women, specifically Muslim women, have just as much qualifications, are articulate, understand uh, the system, but they're never obviously given opportunities in mainstream mm -hmm. to really talk in the way that, um, you know, that, that really represents their voices. Right. And I think it's because of this very, very weird uh, kind of mentality that we've put nowadays. You know, something I really like to do is whenever I, I go into a new class, I really wait um, until I get called, you know, I, I, I wait and get, I get, until I get called on, and the professor usually gets really excited to call on me because a lot of the times they have this mentality that, oh, like, a Muslim girl will not necessarily speak her mind, or they get surprised when I could formulate two sentences after each other. So I think that um, girls, specifically Muslim women, that have not had the opportunity, you know, stop lowering the bar for us. You know, even even sometimes I even acknowledge that Maybe it's, you know, maybe the reason why I get so much attention is because people don't necessarily have a, ha, a high standard for me. So right. when, when they see a Muslim oh. woman stating, like, a few sentences after, they're like, oh, okay, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's uh, get an interview with her or something, which I know is not the case here, but it's, right. it's something that, that um, could be a little bit patronizing, oh, yeah. uh, specifically young, young people. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, just expect the best. From, from this generation um, and expect that we know what we're talking about and expect that we understand the system way more than you think. You know, what do you, what do you expect uh, some you know, women, students, whatever, whoever it is, like in a classroom, if it, like in a predominantly like segregated school and, you know, don't you think they understand that in other schools they have it better than them? Right. You know, it's this mentality that we perpetuate and it's just, yeah, I really wish that the, the standard will be lifted um, and, and giving more people the opportunity but to them, I, I definitely would say 
to all women, I would definitely say, uh, never be afraid to make your voice heard, um, and never be afraid to kind of uh, not, you know, challenge what you think is the norm. Right. Um, challenge right. the status quo in the sense of either it's taboos or um, things that. If, if, you know, people don't expect you to do well, just kind of prove it with your actions. It's an unfortunate oh, yeah. reality, but um, I think it's necessary. I think you're absolutely right. Thank you so much for being here today and talking yeah, no to me problem. about this. Have a appreciate it. Come back here. sometime. Yeah, you're only 18. Sure. You'll be around. Thanks for joining us today. We'll be back next week to talk about a solar power initiative in Brooklyn, Facebook and stolen data, and the latest with immigration enforcement. Hope to see you then. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It's also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargy, Emily Bogosian, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, Charmaine Lynn, and is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. Our show is recorded by Eric Hagasak, Antonio Rosario, Leslie Hayes, and Steve DeSev. And our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.